what's happened between the time when Fleming discovered penicillin and how, when he worked on that and discovered it, how did he get that to market and in what way is it different from the way things happen now? Well, just to, to digress slightly, since you uh, you raised um, Alexander Fleming, what a lot of people don't know is the discovery of penicillin was actually due to rugby. So um, Fleming was a very good rugby player, and the medical school that he was at here in London were, were desperate to keep him on for another year. Um, and they gave him sort of a, a slightly concocted research project to work on. And um, Fleming was not not actually too diligent. So, you know, he'd been away uh, playing rugby for the whole weekend. He'd left a couple of Petri dishes uncovered in his lab. The window was open. And when he came back on Tuesday, uh, he discovered that some fungal spores had drifted in through the open window, had settled on these uh, Petri dish plates. And no bacteria were growing around them. So he thought, well, that's interesting. There must be something in the fungus that has killed the bacteria. So all of a sudden, a slightly fictional research project developed a huge amount of momentum and, of course, developed into uh, into penicillin. And, of course, uh, you know, further aided really by the, you know, the, the tragic events of the Second World War, not entirely dissimilar, of course, to some of the um, uh, catalysts around the, the current pandemic in terms of, you know, really advancing, you know, moving vaccines forward very quickly. It was really, you know, the Second World War that really p- propelled uh, penicillin into to frontline clinical use. So at that stage, then, what would have got it into frontline clinical use would have been government and, you know, the, the defence ministry. Yes. So I, I think, you know, that there was you know, a huge need with, you know, battle injured, you know, soldiers, airmen, um, uh, sailors to to have, um, you know, an antibacterial therapy that, that was effective. Um, so, you know, that, that, you know, again, like with the pandemic, it was a huge clinical need emerging um, through, you know, a, a huge macro event that, that really, really prompted that, that development. Now, of course, you know, there's been a huge amount of advance in terms of of regulation uh, in in healthcare, and of course, you know, ultimately that is to to patients' benefit. But I, I think what what's been really striking in the current pandemic is seeing particularly how the MHRA, the the regulator here in the UK, but also the the FDA in the US. Uh, really responded very, very rapidly. And uh, in, indeed, you know, um, there's a, a piece of work that, that IQVIA, the market research firm, have done, which uh, has effectively substantiated the case that uh, the Brexit uh, and the, you know, the, the reforms and, and changes that, that came in there at the MHRA uh, effectively made the MHRA match fit uh, for the pandemic. Uh, and, you know, it, that IQVIA would would argue, I think, on the basis of the evidence they have gathered, that you know that was really why uh, why we had a vaccine approved much more quickly than than uh, the EU. So tell me now how your job at Stiefel works. Are people working in health tech at the sort of cutting edge of innovation within the universities? Are they aware of people like you here in the city who have access to capital, and are they? Is it that mature a market now where they know if they've got a great idea where to go to get it backed? So I, I think 
our American cousins are a, a little way ahead of us in terms of being quite that joined up. Um, so, you know, if you take any of the sort of key, you know, life sciences ecosystems in the US, whether it's, you know, Boston and Cambridge, whether it's Research Triangle, uh, where I was actually uh, on, on Monday this week down in, in North Carolina, uh, or frankly, anywhere on the West Coast, I, I think you you just have a much more joined up ecosystem right the way from academia all the way through to um, uh, you know the, the investment side where, where where IP actually gets spun out into companies. But why is that? Is that just because America is much more capitalist, much more entrepreneurial? Because we know. You know, certainly at the big universities here, Oxford and Cambridge and Manchester, you know, there's some great things coming out of there as well, aren't there? Correct. There, there are. And, you know, we're we're catching up very, very rapidly. And, you know, just to, to sort of name, a, you know, a few local heroes here in the UK that are really catalyzing that um, OSE, um, uh, the, the former sort of OSI, but they, they've now rebranded as OSE, have been very, very effective at really getting out, uh, you know, into labs and actually, um, you know, talking to scientists and, and you know, really creating companies. Uh, Syncona here in London as well uh, have, have, have been very successful. So I, I think, you know, we're, we're, we're catching up at a very, very rapid pace now. You know, I was talking to to a friend actually at OSE a couple of weeks ago. Alex Hamaker sat on a, a panel that I was chairing at a conference here in London, and and you know we were talking about some of the challenges in the pandemic. And one of the observations that he made was that it, it's been difficult just physically getting into labs face to face. And you know when you're really at the coal face of meeting you know a professor in a lab with some interesting IP and trying to encourage them to spin out and take some funding and set up a company. It's tough to do that on Zoom. You know, you really have to be there face to face, you know, pressing the flesh and, you know, in in, in some circumstances, actually, you know, really trying to encourage um, these scientists to take the leap and, and actually, you know, get into that company formation. When you've got these people, you know, these incredibly bright research scientists, do they know the direction they're, they're moving in? Because there must be an interesting balance to be had between where their natural intellectual curiosity takes them and what might work as something which can actually get out into the market and be used on patients. Indeed. And I think, you know, that that sort of uh, key driver, I think, for, you know, and motivation for, you know, probably most, if not all people in, in, in fundamental scientific research is to make things better for patients. And it's to develop new therapies. But I think, there, there are a lot of different skill sets you need, of course, to take a, a piece of science and, and, you know, translate that into true clinical research and, and ultimately a, a product that is, is going to go into patients. I, I think, you know, again, you know, something the Americans did before us was combined, you know, MD, PhD programs and then combined MD, MBA programs. You know, when I was training at Cambridge 20 years ago, we were right at the forefront of having a combined um, MD, PhD program. But I think we've probably been a little bit slower to catch up in this country in terms of combined MD, MBA programs. And, you know, I think what uh, what's quite interesting about my background, sort of having done basic science research, 
and clinical practice and now 15 years of, of corporate finance, investment banking uh, work is, you know, I, I sort of span, you know, all, all, all of that. So, you know, it doesn't matter whether I'm I'm talking to, you know, a banker at, an, you know, another bank that, that has got no scientific background or I'm talking to someone in academia that's got no financial expertise, I, that there is immediately some commonality that, that we can we can drive a dialogue from. But how do you work out where the winners are? There must be elements of your job, which is like a Hollywood producer, isn't it? Trying to work out what combination of a brilliant director and a scriptwriter is going to take you all the way and get you a blockbuster. So, I mean, is that something that you get, you get through experience and is in your bones? I mean, do you sometimes go into somewhere and you think, my goodness, this could be fantastic? Well, it, it, it's a great question. I, I I love the analogy actually, and um, you know, I'm uh, I, I'm definitely a face for radio, which is why we're we're doing this as a podcast, I suspect. Um, but I, I think you know, I would I would definitely be behind the camera rather than in front of it. I, I think the the analogy that I use is, and, and one of the reasons that I really moved to Stiefel to create the 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 practice here was the opportunity to do something in a very collaborative team oriented way internally so i think at uh, you know some banks uh, in in the city it, it's very much um you know sort of the cult of personality and it's about one person trying to you know push a, a, a transaction through what we do here very differently i think and 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 clients are really appreciating this and voting with their feet in terms of the, the number of companies working with us is I think my role is really uh, to be a, a somewhat talented conductor of um, of a very, very uh, talented orchestra here at Stiefel. So it's very much about making sure we have buy-in, not just from me and my team in healthcare banking, but from the equity capital markets team, from the equity research team, from the equity sales team, so that when we take on a client or a piece of business, um, that there is absolute conviction from every part of the organization here, right up through senior management, that this is a company we want to back. It's a team we want to back. We believe they're going to be successful. It's the right team, the right science, uh, the right leadership. And then, you know, we, we throw the weight of, of, of our whole institution behind that. And, you know, if you, if you look at just sort of over the last sort of 12, 18 months, we've, you know, tripled the size of our UK healthcare PLC franchise from five clients to 15. We've also turned down a significant number of clients approaching double digits um, where we've not had alignment across the franchise. And it's not necessarily because there was anything quote unquote wrong with any of those companies, but it was simply that we couldn't give full-throated support from banking and capital markets and sales and research. So we've, we've just very politely and, and openly explained that to the companies in question and said it would be disingenuous of us to, to work with you in a more formal way. So tell us about some examples of projects that you've been involved in in, in, in recent years of which you're particularly proud. So I think the, the the two companies that I would flag in particular are um, Renalytics and Maxide, and I, I think they demonstrate another big strength of of Stiefel, The way we have really constructed this franchise from from the ground up, we've actually thought about clients first, and you know, healthcare is a globally integrated 
heavily US-led industry. So, you know, to be operating here in London, just thinking about the UK is clearly not going to work. You you have to be integrated with your US colleagues and really think about what, what clients want. So, um, Renalytics is based between New York uh, and Utah. It was originally a spin-out from Mount Sinai, a very respected teaching hospital in New York. Uh, MaxSite is a company based down in, uh, in Maryland uh, on the east coast of the U.S. And both of those companies actually listed on the London Stock Exchange in 2016 and 2018, respectively. And the reason for that was... Uh, in diagnostics, which is where Renalytics operates, and life science tools, where MaxSite operates, U.S. public market investors will not invest until you are on the market. You've got significant revenues, tens of millions of dollars growing at, you know, sort of double-digit percentages per year. Both those companies listed pre-revenue here in London because there's actually a significant cohort of investors here in the U.K., particularly the, the EIS VCT funds that are very receptive to effectively providing growth equity, venture capital in a listed vehicle in, in an AIM IPO. And Renalytics MaxSite drove their businesses very, very successfully um, uh, raising that capital here in the UK. Both to, to, and, and then we, we partnered very closely with them. They're both retained clients of ours. And we really built the bridge for those companies back into the US. So taking our equity research report published by a London analyst here, because they were sole London listed at the time, leveraging our US sales team to distribute that research into the US, set up non-deal roadshows so those companies could gain exposure to US investors. We catalyzed dual listings for those companies. So in the summer of 2020, we raised $85 million for analytics, dual listing them back onto the NASDAQ. Um, in the spring this year, we raised um, $75 million, um, 55 primary, another 20 of secondary for MaxSite targeting exclusively US investors. And then off the back of that catalyzed a, a very successful, heavily oversubscribed dual list onto NASDAQ, raising over $200 million in July. So, you know, that I, I think both of those are really you know, it's the proof of the pudding that the, the, the way we've con conducted ourselves and built our business at Stiefel, it's not only delivering what clients want, but ultimately it's, it's helping us accelerate these companies into U.S. public markets, leveraging all the advantages of the London Stock Exchange along the way. I'm quite interested in what you said there, because I mean, are you suggesting that the markets in that here in the UK are more willing to take sort of early stage risk than they are in the states. That surprises me, but it, it's very much what we're seeing. The caveat that I would add is to date, it's been very focused. That those earlier stage companies that have been supported here in the UK have been very much diagnostics like Renalytics or life science tools like MaxSite. We're yet really to see um, there being a strong cohort of biopharma companies listing here in the UK. And I, I think, you know, that that's going to take a little bit more time to for, for folks to get really comfortable with the that sort of clinical risk and to really truly understand the science. The, the beauty of diagnostics companies like Renalytics, Life Science Tools companies like MaxSite is even a generalist investor can understand the offering and they can understand the ultimate market size and, you know, can, can build a, a DCF valuation without having a 
you know, a, a PhD or, or being a qualified medical doctor, uh, which probably you do need to properly evaluate a biopharma company. So it just gives you a, a broader range of investors to target in the UK. So tell us, I mean, post-Brexit and we hope moving towards the end of, of, of pandemic, we've had a sort of an opportunity to reevaluate UK PLC and work out what we're good at and what we're not good at. And it does look as if this sort of research is something that we are pretty impressive at in this country. Why do you think that is? And do you, do you think it's sufficiently well supported to continue being so? Look, I, I think we've got a, a huge amount to be proud of in terms of the uh, the academic institutions, the quality of you know, academic scientists, clinicians in this country. So, you know, there's everything to play for there. And, you know, I'm, I'm extremely optimistic about the, the future, um, you know, given, uh, you know, we're seeing a huge amount of capital being formed here by, uh, you know, those earlier stage VC investors like OSE, which are really right at the cutting edge of, of actually company formation, and Sincona as well, right? You know, they're you know almost all of the uh, the investments that that they've backed. It's uh, it's really been about um, you know finding the the science and the scientist and creating the company. And the the interesting thing about Sincona's model is it, it's really about backing that that company on, on a sole basis or in a very small syndicate of of investors. I think historically in Europe more broadly, not just the UK, one of the things that has become a challenge is you've had five or six VC funds backing a company. They've all got different investment horizons, different fund lives, slightly different investment mandates. And then, you know, when the company needs more money in two or three years time, you know, fund A is coming to the end of its fund life and can't put more in. Fund B is starting to think about, well, actually, should we be flipping the company? Uh, fund C has just raised a new fund and, and, and is well capitalized and is very happy to put more money in. And, you know, you, you've got six VCs down around the table with six different perspectives and, and opinions on the strategy. And, you know, oftentimes that, that's been, been challenging to actually, quote unquote, do the right thing for, for the company and the science. What about Brexit and talent? Because one of the things that we've been really good at in this country is bringing in bright people, not just from Europe, but from Asia, from the developing world generally. What are you seeing going on at the moment with something like Erasmus? We've decided we don't want to be part of that anymore. Does that concern you or not? If the last two years of the pandemic have, have not taught us that, uh, you know, we should be prepared for the unexpected and be prepared for change, and probably the only thing you can guarantee is change, then, you know, we, we shouldn't be too wedded to sort of historical comfort blankets, uh, to be honest. And, you know, go, going back to, to the remarks that, that I made earlier about the big changes that the MHRA catalyzed by Brexit actually setting us in a, in a very, very much on the front foot going into the pandemic. Um, you know, the, the other um, observation that I would draw is, you know, when the EMA decided they were going to move out of the UK, of course, you know, their offices for the European Medicines Agency used to be, you know, a stone's throw from here in Canary Wharf. When they decided to relocate to Amsterdam, um, a lot of the staff said, well, okay, that's fine. You can relocate to Amsterdam, but I won't. 
Um, and, you know, a huge number of people left the organization and have actually gone into, um, you know, either pharma or uh, oftentimes biotech companies here in the UK. So there's been actually a huge injection of regulatory talent into the uh, life sciences ecosystem here in the UK. So, you know, that that's a positive, I would argue. AstraZeneca approach versus the Pfizer approach when it comes to charging for vaccines. Who did the right thing? And if you'd been the CEO of the one or the other, what would you have done? They're, they're both obviously very different approaches. They've both been very, very successful approaches in, in different ways. The, the data backdrop continues to evolve, right? And I, I think, you know, what we're starting to see now is the AstraZeneca vaccine clearly produces uh, a slightly different immune response to the mRNA vaccine response. And I think the durability that AstraZeneca confers through the T-cell response can only be helpful. And, you know, again, here in the UK, because predominantly we gave the AstraZeneca vaccine to older people, uh, particularly when, uh, when those sort of very rare uh, complications of um, the induced thrombocytopenia, the, the, the clotting problems emerged in, in younger people, particularly uh, young women, you know that that's probably setting our our older population in in better stead than than if they had had mRNA vaccines. At least that's what the initial data is suggesting. Do you think that pandemic is making the average individual's opinion of big pharma any different? Because pre-pandemic, you know, you had the Le Carre novels, the Constant Garden, and there, there was a sense that you know these were enormous industrial complexes that didn't always do the right thing. Do you, do you think there's been a revision sort of reputationally for them in the last couple of years? I think there has. Um, and, you know, look, I, I'm not going to name names because we all know the names, right? You know, in, in the US there, in particular, there have been some companies um, more really actually in the specialty farmer zone, you know, buying up old products off patent and, you know, increasing prices by 5,000%. You know, I, I think most people, um, you know, e even the most red-blooded of red-blooded capitalists would scratch their head and say, well, is that really ethical? So, you know, I'm, I'm not going to sit here and, and sort of, you know, try to excuse some of that historical behavior. At the cutting edge, biopharma research is very high risk. You know, you can plow tens, hundreds of millions of dollars. You know, individuals can put half a third of their career into developing a product that then doesn't work, that fails a phase two trial, fails a phase three trial. This is very high risk. Uh, and, and, you know, with high risk comes a higher cost of capital. So that ultimately, you know, simply just drives the, the, the arithmetic, you know, uh, what would be a tragedy, I think, is if, if we see investors cutting back allocation of capital to life sciences simply because the the ultimate rewards were were not there to generate the returns based on the the fraction of of products they invest in that ultimately become commercial products and indeed successful commercial products. But I, I digress. Going back to your original question, I I, I definitely think that that we are seeing a, a reappraisal, frankly, not just, you know, in the UK and the US, but globally around society's view of life sciences companies, particularly biopharma companies, based on the, 
you know, very important freedoms that, that we are gaining through the vaccine programs. Do you think that there is an enormous gulf between the sorts of things that you're involved with working on at the moment, you know, the, the cutting edge of health innovation and what it's like on the primary care coalface in an inner city in, in London here? Do, do you think that, that your world is sufficiently focused on what would make us all healthier and better in the long run? Well, it's a great point. And, you know, there are some immediate parallels um, with, the, with the approach that we've taken to the pandemic. So, you know, you have the, the prophylactic preventive approach of, of vaccines. And then, you know, you have the, the, the treatment approach, you know, sort of, uh, you know, putting, putting the fire out after the fire has started, you know, bailing the sinking ship out after, it start, after it's hit the iceberg. You know, historically, unfortunately, we've probably been too focused on the latter, putting the fire out after it started, rather than, without wanting to torture the analogy too much, installing smoke detectors. And I, I think one of the, the things that, that I'm really excited about uh, moving forwards, and again, you know, there's been a huge re-excitement of, of development and investment opportunities around the diagnostic space coming out of the pandemic, but is that screening approach, you know, can we develop, you know, screening diagnostics, uh, you know, whether it's a blood test or a saliva sample, so that at a population level in a very cost effective way, um, you know, we can we can screen and try to predict these diseases much earlier. What about not getting diabetes in the first place by looking after your own health? And that does seem to be something that sort of changed, doesn't it? You know, you had those extraordinary things like the famous Peckham experiment in the pre-war years, which was about community well-being and, you know, very far-sighted doctors then thinking about what helps people stay, stay well in the first place. Do you think there might be a return to sort of thinking like that rather than, you know, here's a problem, this is the pill to solve it? I, I, I think there has to be. And, you know, ultimately, I, I would like to see a lot more um, done actually, you know, in the education system from primary school onwards. You know, there should be a strand around personal health and, and wellness. And, you, you know, historically, we've thought too much about, you know, health being about treating a disease, whereas wellness is more than the absence of disease. It's mo moving you above the baseline, right? So whether that's diet, exercise, not smoking, you know, I, I was listening to a great podcast the other day uh, that said, you know, sitting down is going to be the new smoking, you know, and, and particularly coming off the back of a pandemic where, you know, oftentimes it's been actually, you know, illegal to leave your house for more than an hour a day. You know, we, we've all probably become a little bit too sedentary and actually getting back in, in that pattern of building activity into your daily routine, you know, it's, it's very hard if, if you say to somebody who has a sedentary lifestyle, you know, right, you need to go to the gym three to five times a week. The probability of that happening is about zero. But if you can just build in, you know, well, actually, instead of jumping in a taxi, why don't you walk between the next two meetings? Or why don't you jump to the tube because you've got a five to 10 minute walk at each end? And, you know, just just building that in, you know, I've done 6000 steps already today by simply tweaking my routine. Um, and I feel better for it. Um, you know, so I, I think there's a there's a theme there. What about mental health and, and psychology? Because often that's a sort of an, an Aunt Sally, that, you know, that 
that that doesn't get thought about. You don't you don't you don't hear about you know advances in that discipline as much as you do in you know at the moment as you know with vaccine and antibiotics and things like that. Do you? Uh, look, I, I think it's a great point, and you know it's really only the last sort of two or three years that it's actually become sort of almost acceptable actually to talk about mental health and you know tragically there's been a huge set of societal stigma uh, around uh, around talking about mental health in in, in an open way uh, historically and I, I think you know even you know just being able to, to talk about topics like that I think is a very important uh, move in in the right direction but I think what we're what we're starting to realize and you know there's another company that that we're working with in in the US actually thinking about an IPO here in London that have got a very interesting diagnostics based saliva test where from a, a simple cheek swab you can you can essentially predict which uh, you know which three out of a panel of 20 antidepressants are actually most likely to work because unfortunately at the moment it, it's a little bit potluck and you know you might get prescribed an antidepressant um you know it doesn't work a lot of those patients won't even go back uh, to their gp and bother trying to to move on to a to an alternative medication just thinking oh this one isn't working, so none of them will work. So you know, a, a lot of people are immediately lost to follow up. Um, you know, almost at the first hurdle. The thing that that, that I'm excited to see is, is really the, uh, the the leveraging of diagnostics to guide treatment uh, going forwards. And I, I think, you know, um, again, you know, historically, unfortunately, just like investment banks, you know, a lot of uh, science and scientists and researchers get very siloed in their careers early on. And, you know, they either think about therapeutics, or they think about life science tools, or they think about diagnostics. And actually, you know, to do, you know, the best biopharma research at the moment, you have to have a good understanding of life science tools, because, you know, they're the, the picks and, and the shovels of, of the gold rush uh, in, into cell and gene therapy. Uh, equally, you know, I think uh, we, we need to see more people in, in the therapeutic area spending time with their diagnostics colleagues. We need to see more um, uh, partners in the diagnostic sphere spending more time with, with biopharma colleagues and, and really trying to join all of that up. 